Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Welcome back to Partial View Podcast. We're a little international this week. Danielle, do you want to share where you are right now? Yeah, so I am in Edinburgh, Scotland. I was here for the final week of the Fringe Festival, which is, as you probably know, because you clicked on this episode, that is what today's episode is about. And I am staying in the flat of our guest, who is staying in my New York City apartment. Hi. Ro Chung. Alex, do you want to introduce Ro? Because the two of you are, uh, you're the reason that we did this flat swap. I know. I'm so happy it worked out for two people I think are just delightful and can trade cats for a little while. Trade cats and bedrooms. Welcome, Ro. Ro Chung is an Edinburgh-based theater writer and maker, having studied and worked previously in New York. They are currently finishing up their doctoral dissertation on Shakespeare, gender, and violence. As a theater person, they have worked most recently with Some Kind of Theater and The Show Must Go Online. Ro currently edits the theater section of The Skinny, one of Scotland's largest arts and culture magazines. They also act as Director of Communications for StrutSafe, a UK-wide volunteer-run support line for anyone walking alone at night. Hi! Yay, Thanks for having Yay. me also in your house. <laughs> Thank you for taking care of my <gasps> lovely cat, Crouton, and I'm taking care yeah, of Crouton. your little kitten, Laszlo. Crouton is an angel, and Laszlo is something. <laughs> Lasso is also an angel, but just a yeah. little bit more of an agent of chaos. <laughs> because he's a kitten, and Crouton is not a kitten. That's what we call chaotic good. Yes. Wait, what's what's Crouton's alignment? Oh, God. Yeah, that's a, neutral that's really good. maybe? Yeah, I think neutral. Yeah. I, don't, I think he's I don't neutral think, good. I don't no. think any cat can be lawful, you know? <laughs> that's very true. I, like, I really don't think so. Um, they even say in cats that like macavity breaks all like natural laws or whatever, human laws. Like, and I think it's just like he's the extreme of all cat temperament. I mean, if you want to get into character discourse Are about we... cats, I am always interested. <laughs> Wait, we're changing the podcast topic right now, Danielle. You've been overruled. I no longer care about fringe. I just want to talk about cats. <laughs> there was actually a fringe show. Oh my god, let me pull up the name of it. I didn't see it. I thought about seeing it. I saw this person's other show, and that's why I knew about this. So the show I saw, and we'll get to this, like we'll cut this a little bit, but this diversion. This is gonna um, be really I good saw bonus content. His show called Diana, the Untold oh my god. and Untrue Story. By Linus Carp. Yes. So he was on doing his cat's show before our slot last year, so we got to hear the last three minutes of the show every day. <laughs> Waiting in the oh, wings. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm trying to find the name of it. Um uh, Jellic Because it's it was long. Yeah. So hold on. Oh he's fantastic. Oh no, I found it. Yeah. How to live a jellical life. Life lessons from the twenty nineteen hit musical cats. Oh so my specifically god. Specifically the movie the that movie. caused the pandemic. <laughs> the I think my love of talking about cats has become an unironic love of the Cats franchise, and I'm all right with that. <laughs> well, enough about cats. Fake cats. We can talk more about the real cats in a bit. Do we want to talk about what we're enjoying right now? Or Ro, if you're ready to go. I have one. I do. Yes, go for it. <laughs> Lately, I've been reading Naomi Novik's kind of YA fantasy series that called this, um, oh my god, I need to look up the name real quick. But it's about something called the Scholomance. It's like a little what if Hogwarts was trans and trying to kill you and um, there were no teachers, only kids. Wow. <laughs> um, the first book is called A Deadly Education. Yes, I've heard of that. Yeah. Oh, I've heard, heard of, of that, that too. That's awesome. Really fun. I'm going to be completely candid. I read one of Naomi Novik's and I didn't like it at all. So I stayed away. But 
This sounds like a premise I could get into. Yeah, I looked it up. It is called the Scolomance series. Um, I really enjoyed it. Sometimes I need a book that will just treat me like a little stupid baby. Um, And I've been really liking these. That's awesome. Cool. How far into the series are you? I just started the second book. Yeah, it's been a while since I read a series for fun. So that's nice. (laughs) PhD life. Yeah. Seriously. Cool. I'm trying to decide what I'm going to talk about exactly. So there, there's two pieces of pop culture. One is really quick, and I'll leave it at that, which is that yesterday Taylor Swift announced that she is putting her concert on film for like a three-hour-long movie. Yes, I went. Yes, I got opening day tickets to go to the movie. Yes, I want the souvenir popcorn bucket. All these things. I will say that the trailer is a masterpiece. I watched it for the third time and cried on the subway. The other thing that I'm really enjoying right now, and this is big because I never recommend books when I'm in the middle of them. And I never recommend books this early on. So like this could come back and bite me in the ass. But I'm reading a book right now that is a modern classic and everyone loves it. But I just have been slow on the uptake. I am loving Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. And I, 10 years ago, was like, I want to try Neil Gaiman. And I read the one Neil Gaiman you're really not supposed to read, like, alone, like, before anything else. I read Ocean at the End of the Lane. And I hated it. And I was like, Neil Gaiman, not for me. But I decided to give it another... But you did Neil Gaiman wrong. So I know. Well, I, I will say that... By your own admission. I did Neil Gaiman right by reading the series of comics that he wrote where the Marvel characters are in Elizabethan England. Um, That series is really good. I picked it up at Baltimore Comic Con and I blew through it. So that was really good. So yeah, I picked up a copy of Good Omens a couple of years ago, used, it's been on my shelf and oh my God, it is so funny and it is so smart and it's so hard to find those two things in tandem in literature. Like one is always dominating the other, but here they are perfectly balancing each other out and I'm having a blast, but oh my God, oh my God, Good Omens. I, I'm just, I recommend it for everyone, I think. I think Such it should be required book. reading. So fun. Yeah. I think the thing that I am enjoying that I've decided to bring to the table today is um, very silly, and it is the social media marketing campaign for the Merrily We Roll Along revival that's coming up. The footage they got of the three of them, Dan Radcliffe, Lindsay Mendez, and Jonathan Groff, just sort of like talking about each other and the show <laughs> and the production um, and the experience in rehearsals and the experience doing it off-Broadway and that they're now transferring it. And, like, they got all of this incredible footage of the three of them. And all of them are just, like, rays of sunshine, delightful people. And it is shockingly effective marketing. Mm. Like... That it isn't even really, like, about the show. It isn't, like, production photos or past reviews or anything. It's just, like, you see the three of them who are playing best friends on stage behave like best friends in front of the camera. And it's adorable. And I love them. And Alex and I are going to first preview um on Broadway like shortly after I get back from Edinburgh and you know by the time this episode comes out uh we will have gone oh my god and so you'll hear about it soon audience I'm so scared I'm so scared it's gonna get canceled because you know first preview after years of working in regional theater I'm so used to that Um, I don't think that'll happen I don't think that's gonna I don't think that's gonna happen and I cannot fucking wait same and like we already talked about the off-broadway production Mm -hmm. on the podcast and how much how perfect it is how much we adore it so get ready for uh part two of that rant oh can't wait can't wait (sighs) 18 days oh is that it amazing it's on september 19th i have a vacation in the middle so that's what i'm counting down to but that's fair anyway awesome 
Well, speaking of theater that we love, let's dive on in. We're going to chat today about kind of Edinburgh Fringe in general, but as it relates to American theater, how artists see Edinburgh, um, how people like outside of the industry see Edinburgh as well. There's a like, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot of topics to chat about. How about we each sort of give a brief overview of like what our, I guess like history, quote unquote, with Fringe has been or like what our preconceived notions were of it before experiencing it, if we have experienced it. Yeah, or just like general, because like I was, I wasn't sure, Ro, if you had also done American Fringe festivals at any point. No, I don't think so. Okay. Not in a major way. So like, I guess for context, Danielle and I were both fairly involved with New York Musical Theater Festival Mm -hmm. when it existed. Danielle for a long time. And like, I was never directly involved with a Fringe Festival outside of Nymph. Um, but I don't I've, know that I'd call Nymph a fringe festival, though. That's that's interesting, mm, though. It's a good like, question. Like, what defines fringe? It's a festival. It's a festival. But I, and I think it functions very similarly to other festivals, like other fr- fringe festivals that I've been to. But I've attended a couple festivals in a couple different cities. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Danielle, what about what about you? Like, how, how has your Edinburgh experience been? What did you kind of think going into it was going to be like? Okay, so I'm trying to do this in like the least long-winded way possible. Yeah. Well, first, in addition to Nymph, I had one year, it might have been two years, I wrote, I reviewed New York French Festival mm-hmm. productions for an online publication. And so, and I've also like, attended random shows like at I think Philadelphia Fringe one year. I was supposed to be bringing a show that I developed in grad school to two Canadian Fringe festivals in the summer of 2020. So you can all imagine that that didn't happen. For Edinburgh specifically, my first full-time job in New York was at 59E59 Theatres, which holds a like almost mini Edinburgh Fringe Like, it's sort of, they call it the East to Edinburgh Festival, and it's essentially giving a handful of American productions that are going to Edinburgh a chance to, like, do a dry run Mm -hmm. in a simulated fringe environment with the same sort of, like, load-in and strike situation. And um, so I saw some of those while I was working there. But of course, it does not convey the whole vibe of an entire city being taken over. And none of the other fringe festivals that I've attended or been involved with in any way are anywhere near the scale of Edinburgh Fringe. And like, not only are the festivals themselves smaller, but they're smaller festivals in cities that are larger to begin with. So it's like, even the ratio is like, it's not comparable. It's Mm -hmm. simply not comparable. It's kind of crazy. I was in DC when Capital Fringe moved there. Essentially like the festival moved quadrants and that was like a really big deal. <laughs> like all of a sudden it wasn't in Northeast, it was in Southwest. And like for better or worse, it was like, there were like politics surrounding it. It was like a really big deal. I said, well, it is DC. Of course there are politics. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. And there was like this whole realignment of like who was going to be experiencing Fringe. So it's really interesting. That's at the point I hadn't thought about, about like an entire city for like a month of the year is like so devoted Mm -hmm. to this one thing. Like that's so cool. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild to think of like going to an amusement park and then having that amusement park come to you. Mm. But it's also Edinburgh has a very, very small and walkable city core, but it has some large suburbs as well. So... Edinburgh's most residential populations only run into the festival if they're trying to, like, really come into work or go to, like, any kind of local business, then um, that's where the crowds kind of intersect. Ro, what was your um, history with Edinburgh Fringe before you moved here or other Yeah, tell us. Yeah, so 
Um, I I had never come to the Edinburgh Fringe before moving here. I had heard of it, but at the time when I first decided to start the PhD, I still had no plans really to become a theater professional. Um, and I think at that time I was still planning to be a doctor of medicine, which is hilarious. And so I only ever expected to be related to Fringe as a spectator. And my first year in Scotland was 20, my first summer was 2018. And I saw a bunch of stuff and had a great time, didn't work on anything. And basically just because I have to know every single option available to me, I read the entire theater program on the website from A to Z and picked like the top 20 shows that looked interesting just from what was on the Fringe website, which has its own drawbacks that we can come back to later. (laughs) And yeah, so 2018, I was just a spectator. And then 2019, I was working at a venue, at a small venue that's not part at one of the big corporations. So it was a really good job. But even that, I was working seven days a week and split shifts six days a week. Um, And I was also stage managing another show at another venue. So I would start my day running an an 8 a.m. concert and then get lunch and walk to my show, run the show, and then come back and work the evening shift. And so my relationship to Fringe obviously was quite Mm -hmm. embittered that month. But after having like a year off because of the pandemic, we kind of got August back as a city for just that year, especially when we were still in lockdown Mm. at that point. It really just highlights like what a central part of life in Edinburgh, the fringe can be because um, so many of the businesses and so many of like the corporations that are housed in Edinburgh are, you know, banking on making an enormous proportion of their money during Mm -hmm. fringe. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna shout out, I remember at one point on social media, you were advertising that you were working on You're a Good Man Charlie Brown at Fringe? Oh, yes. That, I lied. 2018, I did work I'm so on something. I'm so fascinated because I, I've always wanted to ask you about this, but like, how did you, okay. how, why, like, in America at least, Fringe festivals are like new work, new work, new work for the most part. Yeah. How okay. did this, this happen? This is one of my I, one of my very public complaints about the Edinburgh Fringe is that it really is a cash grab for a huge proportion of venues um, because it's really quite a bad deal for the artists and quite a bad deal for the audiences. And so what ends up happening is local or smaller companies that need to make money from doing the Fringe and want to bring work to the Fringe, but the cost of that is quite high end up doing work that they know will sell. And one of the kind of longstanding criticisms of the Edinburgh Fringe from local Edinburgh artists is that it is quite a mainstream festival taste-wise. And I often balk at like addressing taste in that way just because I don't feel like I'm the arbiter of what is and isn't tasteful. But I can say that very little new work gets put on in comparison to like what you would expect of an American fringe festival. There are really are no bar. There are no bars to meet for how like new or how quote unquote fringe the work actually has to be. You can just, if you have the rights, you can do it. That is so fascinating to me because that is not how we think about festivals in America. Like festivals are very like development oriented in America, Mm -hmm. whether or not there's like dramaturgical support or whatever. But like, wow. Wow, where do I even start? I have so much to say. Yes, I think in the US, we think about festival environments as a means of developing new work. And I definitely see firsthand that that isn't the really the primary goal, if it's a goal at all for most of the shows in Edinburgh Fringe. Like, one of the things that I saw was Mike Birbiglia's The Old Man in the Pool, um, which was on Broadway last season, but I missed it in New York, so I was really happy for the chance Mm -hmm. to catch it. And from what I understand, the purpose of him doing, doing it for a week in Edinburgh was to sort of test run it with a UK audience because he plans to bring it to the West End. So, like... It's more, and maybe that's a little bit yes. in the 
realm of like new work development because that may lead to some changes. But I did also see um, a lot of new work and particularly a lot of like stand-up comedians go and use the festival, use Edinburgh Fringe as their stage to develop material. Comedy is huge there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also, the other thing that you hit on, Ro, is talking about the economics of it and the fact that it's actually not a good economic deal for most of the artists bringing work to Edinburgh, which is super interesting because Alex and I were looking at Mm -hmm. a lot of Playbill's coverage of Edinburgh Fringe, which it's like this is the first year Mm -hmm. that Playbill or really like any, maybe not any U.S. outlet, but like certainly. It's probably the most extensive that a single outlet has ever done for Edinburgh. And so, because like the the Mm -hmm. New York Times has obviously sent critics before, but like, yeah, Playbill did like a really extensive did really extensive Edinburgh Fringe coverage. And there was one article that came out recently of Deep Tran, who's their um, editor-in-chief, sort of reflecting on her time in Edinburgh for three weeks covering Fringe and interviewed a number of artists, particularly American artists who were there, who were talking about how compared to mounting a show, even in a Fringe Festival environment in New York City, doing it in Edinburgh is like a third of the cost. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. It's so expensive here. Oh my God. It's like they were saying something that was maybe 40,000 pounds to put up at Edinburgh Fringe would easily be a hundred in New York. Yeah. A hundred grand. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. I think part of the way that these big, so any, any show with a budget of that scope will probably be at one of the big four venues, which are Pleasance, Underbelly, Assembly, and Gilded Balloon, I think. Those venues are known for using volunteer labor. So any staff member that you encounter in like a Pleasance venue, for example, is being compensated with only housing. Oh, but there's housing. (laughs) Yeah, so they invite like recent graduates or students from the like, the south so usually from england or other parts of scotland to come stay in edinburgh for the month and volunteer at these venues which ends up being a great deal for the venues and um i think is a pretty popular program with the people who come to do it but of course that causes a lot of conflict with like local workers and also with union organizers and people who are like this does not actually meet the requirements to not be modern slavery. Yeah. That's so interesting because it's you're describing it and it's 1000% something I would have done in a heartbeat in oh, college. Oh, for sure. And absolutely. I did I absolutely did one of those like unpaid apprenticeships so where you just yeah. And now it's but yeah. now with like the overall labor movement happening yeah. in the US and internationally, it's like we're finally all saying like, "Oh, hold on though. <laughs> Why?" Yeah. I would I would much rather see a show at a venue where the workers are paid mm-hmm. for their labor, but very very few of the fringe specific venues do that because I feel like if one of your competitors is doing it, it's extru- it becomes increasingly difficult to justify going out of your way when it doesn't seem like anyone yeah. cares except for the locals of Edinburgh. I mean, one of the things that we did want to talk about is the idea of and we can talk about this in general for festivals and also for Edinburgh, but how it is comparatively in the theater ecology, these festivals are all a kind of a lower stakes environment for the artists, for mm-hmm. the administrators as well, to be kind of getting, either kind of getting your foot in the door or trying out something like really crazy that you think might not do well at like a bigger theater. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that's a really important point to make here. Um, especially given the diversity yeah. of, of Edinburgh. Like, I will say I've seen some stuff that New York Fringe... I, I don't think I've ever seen a New York Fringe show that, like, bowled me over that I wasn't, like, t- mediocre on, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. There are some... Yeah, there are incredible, incredible pieces at the Fringe every year. Um, and there's been a lot of, like, meta talk about it this year, maybe even more than in past years, because there's been kind of a crisis in the supply chain between fringe productions and being picked up for other runs. And what it seems to have come down to is that 
because of price hikes in the cost of coming to Edinburgh um, for people who don't live in Edinburgh and the cost of putting on work and staying in Edinburgh for people who live there year round, um, there's been a major shortage of like PR and press coverage for pretty much everything. So I had artists reaching out to me being like, hey, I've done everything I think I'm supposed to do. Like I sent out my press releases months ago. I've been following up. I reached out to my contacts and no one is wow. coming to review my show. We've had audiences of like one, two people. And these are shows at like trusted venues. These are people who have received good ratings for other things in the past. And so if these shows are having trouble getting audiences in and getting coverage, the the broader effect is that there's just an incredible dearth of coverage this year. And that coverage is really the linchpin for a yeah. lot of shows securing tours or runs after the fact so there's been like I think a little bit of a an increasing sense of panic that the fringe isn't serving its purpose really for anyone anymore that's so, that's so interesting. interesting because I feel like I know that sort of the like I maybe like I keep coming to the words like ruthless and cutthroat and that's sort of too negative of a vibe for what I'm saying but like that that is sort of that like sort of desperate scramble for an audience is the default for Edinburgh like that doesn't seem like it like it's interesting Mm -hmm. that you're talking about it in the context of like it being part of like a newer sort of crisis for the festival because for me like that was one of my sort of I guess preconceived notions about the festival is that like I could end up being one of like three people in an audience Mm -hmm. um just because there's so much Mm -hmm. like Listeners, for context, if you don't know, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, like we've already said, is the largest in the world. But what that means is there are more than 3,500 shows happening in this city over the course of the month of August every year. Like hundreds of venues Mm -hmm. from like actual theaters and like auditoriums to like shipping containers, bar basements, a former locker room. There was one that was set in a bathroom that was advertised to me on Instagram or something. Like, it's the most in- it's the most incredible environment to mm-hmm. see experimental work in, and there is always experimental work, um, but you have to kind of like chase it down sometimes. Yeah. I would love to know a little bit about your perspective as an American, and also you work in Edinburgh, you work in theater journalism. You have worked on Fringe in Edinburgh. Like, do you... So so when you're talking about this crisis, do you think that, like, something being acclaimed at Edinburgh or having a good run at Edinburgh is still, you know, momentum for further development, further production in Edinburgh? Because I would say it definitely is in America. Like, if you hear of a sh- that a show did well in Edinburgh, it's like, that's clout. I would say increasingly, yeah. more yes. recently... And, Be- and partly because of six. And I think, oh, I've, I always forget yes. that that was Edinburgh. Yeah. I saw that in the big upside down cow <laughs> at like 20. Oh, Under Valley. So I loved it there. I, I would also say that like people outside of the thin theater industry, they know Edinburgh fringe recommended stuff. Yes. And like that makes them want to go see something mm-hmm. here in America. So yeah. I find it really interesting that you're saying that that pipeline is not functioning as well now over in the UK. Yeah, it's a huge threat to the industry. And I think UK theater up until a few years ago, at least from my perspective as an American, had way more, way more influence, way more safety nets than we have in the US. And like they were very meager at the time already. But even since then, it's become much more difficult. It's becoming almost as difficult as as it is uh, in New York. But I think that the Edinburgh, just on its own, is an incredibly like romantic city and an incredible place to visit, and it has a lore of its own. And so the Edinburgh Fringe Festival has like an incredibly cool reputation internationally. And because it's so cutthroat, because it's so challenging to get audiences in, I think that there is sort of like a populist power still to, to a show's success. Like, the shows don't really have that much of an opportunity to get marketing across. Um, And unless it's got some kind of wild stunt casting in it, it really, 
you know, there's an impression that shows that are successful in Edinburgh are successful very much on their own mm-hmm. merits. And so I think it, it, you know, the crowd is trustworthy in that way. The word of mouth was really important. Like there were things that there were shows where maybe the sort of when I was going through the listings earlier in the summer and starting to plan what I wanted to see that like I read the description and I was like, "Mm, no, and like that's not going to be a thing. And then it turned out just like even only being here for a week and even only Honestly, like, I didn't get to half of what I wanted to see. I ended up having a cold and sleeping in and, like, didn't get to this one thing called Big Kid Kindergarten that was at 11 a.m. every day that I really wanted to do. But (laughs) I was just, like, not feeling great. Wasn't COVID. Took a test. But there were even just, like, being in the environment of Fringe, there were things that, like, were just sort of like talk about them and hearing people say like, oh, what are you seeing next? What have you liked? Like just hearing the chatter and that were like very much rising to the top. Like the word of mouth felt like really had an energy to it. It was really interesting. And it was like, there was also my, my friend and I, so for people listening, um, a good friend of mine lives in Vienna, Austria And when I solidified plans coming to Edinburgh, he decided to join me for the week um, that I was here for the, um, I'm here for two weeks, but the first week I was here was the last week of Fringe. So we were coordinating shows we wanted to see. And like, the other part of that is like, everywhere you went in the city, people were trying, were like passing out flyers for their show and like, desperately trying to get audiences. And we really wanted to... Um, like truly if I hadn't gotten a cold we would have done this more than once but like we really wanted to just like show up to something that someone handed us a flyer about yeah yeah well that's become a whole thing about Edinburgh is like the interesting ways that people will get you in by like walking around on stilts or just like coming out in costume and like 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 being and and papering not papering that's the wrong term no but sometimes they are genuinely like sometimes where it's like there were times I encountered somebody who was saying, like, this show starts now, just come in. Oh, wow. That's very yes. cool. Mm-hmm. That's very, very cool. Yeah, we've, we've touched on a lot of what we wanted to talk about. I would love to talk about journalism, specifically, from your point of view. But before we get into that, I would also love to just touch on like diversity in the programming and in the audiences at Fringe. I would love to get both of your kind of responses to like how you feel about, you know, and I mean diversity very broadly of all types, how you feel Fringe is nurturing a diverse environment or not. Should I start as just like my sort of first impressions? I feel like it was fairly easy to find diverse work both in terms of I mean certainly easy in terms of genre that's not a question but also easy in terms of race in terms of ability all sorts of things it was easy to find that diverse work but there also wasn't a huge amount of it like the fringe website program whatever like makes it easy enough to locate there are I believe the website like would tag things as like disability led or things of that nature and so for people who are specifically seeking that out which I was it's easy to find but if you're just sort of showing up like blind like not knowing what you want to see just sort of like letting the (laughs) street performers and people flyering lead you where they may um you likely would not end up seeing anything resembling a diverse slate of shows Mm. okay yeah i majorly agree with that i think there's well there are incredible organizations there's one that i love called fringe of color that started a couple years ago now just by making like a big spreadsheet where shows could submit themselves as being like POC led. And then that turned into its own festival and they still do the spreadsheet. But just like what you said, Danielle, it's, it's all there in 
sufficient numbers as long as you know where to look, which on the one hand is great, but on the other hand kind of undermines the project of, you know, platforming diverse theater, etc. I think there's a major divide in the festival. For example, I went to see an adaptation of Titus Andronicus that turned out to have no black people in it. And for anyone listening, Titus Andronicus, in part, has a character who is black in the text and must be black um, by the plot, by the way the other characters talk to him, by the way he talks to himself. It would and be like doing a let me tell you, like <laughs> Yes. Which also happens in 2023. <laughs> so, but for example, that production won an award and was very broadly critically acclaimed, widely beloved by fringe goers and by venues and by journals alike. So I think just because of the the influx of artists from all over the world, the international community does tend to reflect the populations that can afford to travel and can afford to bring work. And on the other hand, also the fringe itself and Edinburgh itself affirms that kind of myopic work. So it can be really discouraging to be a person of color or to be disabled, etc., um, especially to be trans and to come to Edinburgh and to see the way that queer and trans performers have been treated, especially this year, and to see the, like, you know, to pass a poster every day that's, like, called pronoun trouble or, like, gender crisis. So, I mean, that's so much of, like, I was just thinking about how when I was working in, like, nonprofit literary offices. There was one theater mm-hmm. I worked for where there were absolutely no script submission criteria. Like, it was totally open submissions, mm-hmm. as opposed to most places that at least, like, require you to have an agent or something like that. And that so many of the plays that I read in that literary office were... Remind me of fringe shows I saw posters for. <laughs> like, they were just, like, a middle-aged white dude who, like, was a retired dentist trying out something new Mm -hmm. and, like, trying to be edgy. And that was so much of it. Like, I also didn't hear anybody talking about those shows. Those were the shows that, like, I think similar to... Like, it felt very, like, a microcosm reflection of, like, larger society and that it's, like, in terms of marketing, in terms of, like how many posters they were able to get printed and hang up around the city. Those, like, those shows that was just, like, one white dude talking about himself were the loudest, but Mm -hmm. not the most successful. Exactly. And then they get incredibly annoyed when they feel like they've poured in all of this, like, money and work, and then nobody turns up and they feel like they've been canceled by reality. (laughs) When it's like, no, this is the free market, man. <laughs> yes, this is cause and effect. This is capitalism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's showbiz, baby. But Can I ask about the diversity of the audiences at Fringe? Oh, absolutely. This comes up a lot. It was very white. Yeah, mm. very white. Um, again, reflecting the populations of the world that can afford to come travel to Fringe, especially if you're not a performer and you're not working. Mm-hmm. Um And if you want to live in, like, a nice apartment for the month and instead of, like, a hostel where you share a room with nine people, some of the housing conditions for performers are absolutely ghastly. And even beyond that, I found out that unhoused populations in Edinburgh had been kicked out of their housing and sent to homes in the countryside for the month. So the Edinburgh Council has been caught red-handed, basically just, like, clean-sweeping all shelters and all government provided accommodation for unhoused people and turning them into like quick fringe housing. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. So it's not ideal. (laughs) It's, it's um, one of those things where the powers that be pit the artistic freedom that the fringe provides against the social cost of the festival. And they say, well, if you want art, like There's a human cost instead of saying that capitalism demands sacrifice for pleasure. Yeah, like one of the things on our outline was that 
it is like the the tension that always exists between mm-hmm. the economic realities or like capitalist forces mm-hmm. and versus like maybe a little I don't know against the artistic aims right it can be difficult to enjoy it if you live there year round i often find like obviously i love going to theater and i love being around theater but if i am going into the city center like from you know you know from where i live it's pretty quiet around there and then once you go up the hill you have to kind of make a conscious decision to enter the throng and in a way that does help me because i can be like i'm going in like that's what i'm doing i'm going to go pay 9 dollars for a diet coke and which i guess is normal for new york no not, neither of you even blinked at that <laughs> well but i also was like where did that even happen are you converting from pounds in your head to say nine dollars because I don't know what you're even referring yeah. to because I <laughs> I haven't found anything expensive. That's so <laughs> well. Things here are every year I come back I'm like, oh, paid you know I'm like what do you mean I'm getting this cocktail for six pounds? Oh, that sounds incredible. That is crazy. That is wild. The thing about that I found about Edinburgh completely overall is that the cost of living is is unfathomably low compared to New York mm-hmm. and unfathomably high compared to the rest of Scotland. Mm-hmm. So when I first moved to Edinburgh, I was just looking, doing a, like a housing search the way I normally would. And it was like, oh, it's, you know, 1,200 pounds for a one bedroom. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's fantastic. And then I looked and it's like, these are the most expensive luxury apartments in the city center. And I, I think... It was difficult for a while for me to understand the economic impact of the fringe just because my frame of reference for what things cost is just insane. (laughs) And also my frame of reference for how difficult things should be because of being from the U.S. I'm like, I had to really readjust and be like, wow, you know, real rose colored glasses. Yeah. So I think it's time for us to take a quick little intermission. Yeah, I like it. We're not a 90-minute show, no breaks. We like to tap out for a little bit. Our maximum is a tight 90. Yeah. But for a podcast, it's not so tight. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be back in a minute. Uh, we have a lot more Fringe talk ahead of us with Ro. So uh, see you then. So we were talking about the cost of living differences between Edinburgh and New York. But you know what doesn't change no matter the country you're in, is how cheap it is to join our Patreon at the lowest level. Absolutely. For just $5 a month to start, you can get added to our Instagram close friends for all those good hot takes, get bloopers and cut content, and you'll get shouted out on our episodes like our patron Sharon, who we adore. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon. If you subscribe at $8 a month, you'll get all that plus monthly bonus episodes. If you subscribe at $20 a month, you will get a, in addition to the shout out, we will plug your project, whatever that may be. And at $100 a month, we'll invite you to come on and see a show with us and then we'll hang out and we'll talk about it. That's patreon.com slash partialviewpod. And we hope that we'll see you on Patreon and that you'll tell all your friends about it as well. Back to the episode. Back to the show. So we started to talk a little bit about the quote-unquote crisis of the coverage of Edinburgh Fringe. So let's just sort of dig into a little bit more about publications and like journalism critics covering festivals in general and Edinburgh Fringe in particular. Um, I think it's like it's interesting because it's like it's already so overwhelming for audiences to choose what to see. I can't even imagine the process as a critic mm-hmm. or as like oh, it's an agonizing. editor trying to mm-hmm. assign shows to your critics yeah. and how you make those decisions. So I know you have experience. It's so with that. I got my first like, "Are you mad at me?" email from a PR person because I oh. wasn't able to send someone to see that many of their shows, and I had email back like, "No, I just have so few." critics this year and um the skinny as a magazine actually has quite a small review allocation compared to other publications um 
so for context, we do a total of 50 theater reviews for the month of August. And That's a there lot. are critics who write for bigger publications who individually do 50 each. So, and it really, it is agonizing to have to pick because so much rides on the coverage and I really feel uncomfortable having that kind of authority. I think critics and editors that like that kind of power are not that trustworthy because I think as an artist, I fundamentally don't believe in my ability to like give a star rating to someone else's art. And a lot of critics complain about star ratings. This is not a new conversation at all, but the star ratings really are like the linchpin of how everything works. And so journals have to adopt this kind of mercenary rubric of like, this is what gets three stars. This is what gets four stars. And if we've been giving too many five stars, then we have to like adjust the rubric to make so that, you know, three stars doesn't come off super insulting and it doesn't seem like we just give everything four or five stars. So as you can imagine, it becomes kind of difficult to judge a work on its own because there's a push and pull economy between it the kinds of reviews we give and how much those reviews mean for the shows that we really, really do like. So in order to preserve your credibility as a journal so that you're not quote unquote like crying wolf and giving everything amazing reviews, you have to be honest. And it really sucks because I don't believe that you can make a value judgment about art like that. And to assign a star rating to something is in a lot of ways to assign a monetary value to it and to assign it like a time worth to it. Like it's worth an hour, it's worth 10 pounds, it's worth a tour. So on the one hand, it's mortifying to me to do it. But on the other hand, I love it. And I love getting to see art and I love getting to support artists that I believe in by validating their work. And I occasionally, I wouldn't say I enjoy, but I find it rewarding and valuable to call out work that I've seen that doesn't function well or that is harmful. But no one, no one ever fucking listens when I do that. But we love you that you keep trying to do it. <laughs> That's a mood. Yeah. Nevertheless. They persisted. They <laughs> Yeah, I feel like there's so much in that with, um, I had a thought and then got distracted by an Elizabeth Warren reference. Um, I was thinking, I was thinking about how when I reviewed New York Fringe shows for like a blog, I was encouraged to go easier because their mm -hmm. budgets were smaller. Like that was the, the caveat that I was given. Interesting. I didn't have that experience. It's also so interesting because... I think the idea of having to sort of go back and adjust the rubric and sort of like recalibrate the rating system on one hand, like makes a ton of sense to me because it's like when you, you have, you have to sort of like calibrate yourself and your expectations. And it's like, if the first thing you see is like quite mm -hmm. good, that sets the standard. But then later you're going to see something that you're like, oh no, this was like, 10 times more impactful exactly. to me than that thing I saw the first day. Mm -hmm. And so now I have to completely readjust yeah. my opinions on all of it and like my ratings on all of it. And it's like, so that just makes a lot of sense to me. Like I, that doesn't, I mean, at face value doesn't feel like something like shady or like overly judgmental, but at the same the time, stakes are so high like, for the stakes are high for these artists while at the same yeah. time, like we said earlier, being comparatively low. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The, the cost of failure at Fringe is at the Fringe is not that high compared to the cost of failure in like mm -hmm. a run in a regional theater, for example. And I, by failure, I use the word term failure very loosely just to be like, if it gets panned or if it has to close early, it doesn't sell, whatever. Edinburgh Fringe, I'm pretty sure you most of the time pay up front. So you, it can't get worse essentially it can't get worse <laughs> that's the name of the episode that's the name of the episode you're all you're yeah. always just operating from a loss exactly yeah you start at such a deficit but to your point about like adjusting the rubric i think that's part of why shows start emailing journalists in like may or june because if you secure a review in the in your first week that is 
infinitely more valuable than waiting until Mm -hmm. the last week when you've got some word of mouth going. So it's incredibly important for shows to advertise in a really, really specific way to journalists. And I've often grappled with like how to get that information to people who don't know how to do it, because there is like a trick Basically, there's like a series of skills that are specific to the Edinburgh Fringe um, in terms of marketing. Like we talked about the flyering. There's a specific format that I, I at least prefer for press releases because I think it's the easiest to get information from. And I've made tweets where I'm like, oh, like this or comment if you would find a thread on this helpful. And no one cares. But <laughs> I think, you know, there's um, almost what feels like a deliberate opaqueness to it that sort of feeds into both chaos and kind of mm. manages the volume in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like not the best analogy, but like survival of the fittest, yeah. essentially. Like it's like it's self-selection almost, mm-hmm. but it also definitely when you operate that way, it leaves out people who are starting from a place of like not just systemically not having an understanding of these systems. Let's talk about let's talk about American journalism coverage of the Fringe Festival because as you noted before Danielle, this was like the first year that Playbill had a major presence at the Fringe Festival Edinburgh Fringe. What I will say is that I just searched the New York Times. I see two articles. Actually no, a couple more. Wow. I see, sorry, one, two, I see, like, a few. Because I know Deep said that they sent, like, two people to cover things. And I'm seeing one, two, three, four, five, like, six articles huh. from this current Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm seeing, like, That's op-eds, really but not as many, like... Yeah, it's all it's all about, like, the character of huh. Fringe and not so... And, like, actors at Fringe and not so Maybe. much... But honestly, six articles in about a month feels like a lot for the New York Times, Reviews. Too. Maybe the reviews are coming. Maybe they're going to do it like a roundup. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. I think um, even if it was over a little bit more than a month and it was like one a week or it seems like it was yeah. certainly multiple mm-hmm. over the course of like a couple months. There's um, I think I really believe that a mm-hmm. lot of it has to do with recent fringe successes mm-hmm. coming to New exactly. York. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Like, not only six, but Playbill's also referenced. I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I have no real opinion on it, but The Shark is Broken mm. that's now running on Broadway yeah. came from Edinburgh Fringe. Which I'm dying to see. Uh, just for us, right? Well, I don't remember where if that started. I don't think that started at Fringe. He also I did, know he didn't, it, it didn't start there, but I'm pretty sure it was there. This year, one night, they did a benefit, mm-hmm. a one night benefit, mm-hmm. because it was like the week after it closed on Broadway. Yes, uh, Just For Us was at Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Oh. I found it in the article about Adam Brace's death. Yeah, sadly. but the, that's so interesting that like six is kind of the dominating example here, because in the UK, it's Fleabag. In, in Scotland, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Well, that's that's also referenced in the US a lot. Yeah, huge. In Scotland, it's like every every press release that I got last year was like um, a Fleabag style solo show about being a skinny white woman from the landed gentry um, who makes intentionally bad decisions. I love Fleabag. I'm trashing Fleabag out of love. But it's also um, the skinny white woman out of the landed gentry. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible turn Incredible. And it makes... Gr- it's almost like you're a writer. So um, but oh my god I should be a writer um, guys what if we all went to grad school <laughs> what if we did that what if we all what did in, that what if we did what, what that would be so random of us oh my god let's not talk about that <laughs> we don't talk about that you know what it's in the past not for you <laughs> okay um, I would love to know like really quickly if you have like two or three shows you want to shout out that were great at Fringe at Edinburgh Fringe this year, like what what like has stayed with you? Okay, um, Rapid Fire, Chloe and Natasha, who are a New York based duo of, of theater artists, clowns, and highly competent movers in their mid twenties, who won a Fringe have now won two consecutive Fringe First awards 
for their show last year and then the rodeo burned down and their show this year, What If They Ate the Baby, which they write, create, direct. They have an incredible lighting designer and it's just the three of them. And they schlepped all their stuff to Edinburgh two years in a row to just blow the lid off of it. Those are two incredible, really strange, gay, trans, clown shows. Super poignant. Uh, Rapid Fire. Other things that I loved were A Spectacle of Herself by Laura Murphy um, and Bakla by Max Percy and Friends. Uh, These often, I think the genre that I tend to like the most is like chaos clown with a theory slash political bent. Great. Unsurprisingly, because I think that's kind of how Mm -hmm. I live my life. But yeah, those are my... I guess my my top four. Amazing. And Danielle, any what like from your one week, what would you shout out? So I think I mentioned it earlier, but Diana, the untold and untrue story. What's what's his name again? Rob? Linus Carp. Linus Carp. I keep wanting to say Liam, but Linus Carp's solo show, solo-ish show, in drag as Princess Diana, telling a totally like untrue version of her life most a lot of the fundamental details are the same but the big difference is uh spoiler alert in his show she survives the car crash (laughs) uh it was so hysterical so funny um just just as insane and unhinged as you would expect it to be based on the title A plus. Um, And also, I loved Bill's 44th, which has previously run in New York, but that was a puppet show of a man named Bill, who is a puppet, um, hosting his 44th birthday party in his apartment, but no one shows up. Um, And it's sad and absurd and funny and sweet and I loved it um and then a lot of the other stuff I saw was mostly um comedy stand-up comedians so um I I liked pretty much everything I saw but um shouting out the two like more theatery it sounds like it was just a great time a great time was had by all in Edinburgh this year it's true I ate some really incredible food for some really incredible food carts. Yeah, mm-hmm. good food. The uh, the vibe is immaculate mm. everywhere. Like, that's that's what I'll leave y'all with is like... Go I... for the theater, stay for the vibes. Yes. <laughs> or go for the vibes, stay for the theater. I don't know which, mm. which order it is. Like, I... Like, truly, the food is a standout. And just like the giant tents with like the fake astroturf and benches and beanbag chairs and karaoke machines and string lights and just like hanging out and vibing with all these with like seeing friends run into each other Mm -hmm. you running into people I didn't but if I had been at Edinburgh even like a couple days earlier I would have run into people I know so many people that were here earlier in the month it's just like the best vibes the best atmosphere. Incredible. So I don't know, Danielle, have we solved like American perceptions, the, the American relationship with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival? Um, I think we have. And the answer, the solution that we have found is that I need to come back again. <laughs> yes. I love that. Thank you so much, Ro, for joining us today. Um, If people want to try and find you on the socials or if you have anything you want to plug, please like let us know right now and we'll also put everything in the show notes. Lovely. Well, I have not had a creative or original thought since beginning my PhD, so stand by for projects. But you can find me on Instagram at ro.chung. That's R-H-O. Um, and if Twitter still exists and if I'm still on it, by the time this comes out, it's just ro.chung on Twitter. And if you are a theater artist and you're coming to Fringe next year and you want to get in touch with me about coverage, you can reach me at row at theskinny.co.uk. Um, and if you're curious about Strutsafe, you can check us out on Instagram at Strutsafe, all one 
one phrase and our website is strutsafe.org we can be called from anywhere in the uk our line is free to call we're open fridays and saturdays from 7 p.m to 3 a.m and sundays from 7 p.m to 1 a.m but again by the time this comes out who knows maybe there will be more hours incredible um it's been great chatting with you and also seeing you here in new york for all of our listeners Hope you enjoyed our conversation with the incomparable Ro Chung and that you'll tune in for our next episode. I know I will. (laughs) Ooh, do we have a new subscriber on the line? Yeah, um, I'm a long-time caller, first-time listener. (laughs) (laughs) I love love that conflict. All right, well, it's been great. It's been fringy. It's been fringy. It's been fringy and fabulous. Catch you next time. Bye. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye.